Obama's top counterterrorism general, General John Allen, says Afghanistan can't beat the Taliban without a new air force. Syria are tomorrow's talks already dead in the water. Britain's arms sales to Saudi Arabia, are they being used against Yemen? Ukraine, why NATO lost the PR battle? And forces charities, is the public going cool? General John Allen, the soldier President Obama picked to tell him how to at least contain, if not beat, so-called Islamic State, is in London. He's here to talk to other military and strategic thinkers about the battle against the biggest terrorism uprising the world has seen. But John Allen's first fight has been against the Taliban and the need to build Afghanistan into a state that can hold its own against any terrorism. This morning, during a BBC interview, the general talked about Afghanistan and rarely the way in which the fight is more than just a sandbox battle. I put a lot of myself into into that conflict. You know, I worked very closely with Hamid Karzai and, and also Ashraf Ghani, who is currently the, the president. And we talked about the need to move from a conflict environment to a post-conflict environment, which would give Afghanistan the ability to get on its feet. So we've got to be very careful about the decisions that we make in terms of the numbers of forces that we leave there, who have the capacity to touch and to train and to uh, improve the professionalization and the professionalism of the Afghan National Security Forces, we've got to be very careful that we reduce that number to a point where the touch, and we talk about the pervasiveness of our touch, that touch is what's useful to the Afghans. But after more than a decade of fighting, the question is, why did the coalition pull out? And what's missing from the Afghan army's Orbat order of battle? I think we need uh, to sustain uh, a presence there long enough, and we should consider staying to 2018 or 2020. And we ought to stay in the right numbers, uh, ultimately, to provide that assistance to the Afghans that are necessary. For example, we should be uh, seriously considering providing close air support to the Afghan security forces. After Afghanistan has come Syria. It's on his agenda this week as negotiators arrived ahead of tomorrow's meeting in Geneva. How does he see the future in that conflict? We have to have a political transition uh, in the landscape in Syria that uh, puts a different face uh, in the presidency of Syria. It doesn't require regime change, uh, which could precipitate state collapse, but there there has to be a change in the leadership at the top. And we've always believed that. Uh, And that process has to get underway. And I think we're on to something now. Uh, We just need to have the patience to get everyone, all the right parties in the room, and begin to have the conversation. But it's got to be about transition. It can't be about a unity government because the opposition isn't going to buy it. Well, listening to that is Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Rogers, uh, listening to General Allen is a reminder that you never leave a conflict cleanly. The consequences just seem to follow you. And Afghanistan is an example of that. It is. I mean, we're now into the 15th year of the war there. There was a belief that it had ended, what, right back in 2002. You remember... Uh, George Bush's first State of the Union address in which he thought that the war was essentially over there and we moved on to the axis of evil. What's clear is that Afghanistan is actually very far from being a peaceful developing state. And indeed, one has to say that in the last year or so, Taliban and other armed opposition groups have actually made some 
quite notable gains, and ISIS itself has uh, elements there which are allied to it. So it's proving to be a far more difficult conflict than people ever expected. And frankly, there's no end in sight. The general talks about 2017, 2018. I'll be very surprised if on present trends you don't have Western forces there in another 10 years' time. How big a problem do you read uh, Islamist extremism to be in Afghanistan at the moment? It's not huge because, of course, the Taliban themselves, although there's an Islamist element, are primarily nationalist and ethnic. They're less uh, concerned on the basically the Islamist side than they were and they're also tending to moderate to some extent for very practical reasons of actually maintaining control of rural areas. It's significant but not hugely. Where you do see it though is the more radical elements particularly those linked to ISIS. That is where the Islamist dimension is still very strong. Uh, Christopher Lee what do you think about what the General had to say? I think if you um, just nip back a bit to what he was saying about Afghanistan and he says, you know, he put a lot of himself into that conflict. Uh, and you take it to the next stage where you get an image of a general sort of, you know, deploying forces here, there and everywhere and talking to the top people. And he's more interested in, you know, the, the touch and to train what's going on, what's left over. And that's because important. If you talk to a soldier, private soldier, he would understand that idea. I put a lot of myself. You only put two years maybe into it. He's put sort of five years into it. That becomes very important. You get to the next stage, and that is talking of Syria. Um, I think he's beginning to let out what America's really thinking. America is in support of the so-called rebels. Uh, the so-called rebels are uh, a desperate group. We could end up, if you had the rebels in charge you could end up with the most terrible bloodbath. I'm really, really bloodbath <clears throat> like nothing we've seen. He is starting to say um, that maybe even uh, Bashar al-Assad, the president, could actually be part of that that transition. Um, he's, he says you know, he, he can't carry on being president, but there's got to be something there. And the people that are supposed to be saying, but we're the rebels... You know, we're the guys you supported and that the Americans are actually moving away from that sort of position so when you get to someone like Geneva tomorrow you'll yeah. see that not everybody's there but they're not all sitting around the table this is a sort of uh, uh, this is part of what the general talks, talks about the touchy-feely sort of side of it and they are spread about. They don't even talk to each other. They're mm. in different towns, for example, and that becomes important uh, this, these are what those proximity talks but without them the best way to describe them is that their talks about talks about talks. And a lot of questions about who's going to be there and who's not. Yeah, that if you, for example, you, if you're a Saudi, you're not keen about the Iranians going to be, and the Iranians not keen about the Saudis are going to be there, but you, you can resolve that one. You can bring them together. But then the Turks come along and say, I'm not going to do anything here if the, if the Kurds are here. And that is why their talks about talks about talks. The crucial thing eventually is to decide who speaks for the rebels, not just as a spokesman, but who, who can actually make the rebels, bring the rebels along to any sort of conclusion. And that's why we're right at the beginning, not near the end. Sit Rep with Still to come, what's life like in Nepal since last year's earthquake? Our reporter's been to Gorka District to find out. And service charities, are there still too many? 
One aspect of what's going on in Syria is that it's a war by proxy between Iran and Saudi Arabia. By that we mean Saudi Arabia, ruled by Sunnis, is using the war to fight its enemy Iran, ruled by Shiites. But the Saudis have another almost private war on their hands. It's their war against the rebels in Yemen. Uh, Professor Rogers, who is fighting who and why? Well, essentially, the Houthi rebels um, destabilized and essentially took over from the established government uh, last year. They are seen by the Saudis as almost the proxies for Iran. It's probably overblown, but the Saudis have long been opposed to the development of the Houthi rebellion in Yemen, and they've now decided really to come on board with what remains of the old government. And that really has been drawing together quite a big coalition of Middle Eastern states to fight on behalf of the deposed government. So you have a very bitter conflict. Um, there are very clear indications that there have been many civilian casualties. It's further complicated by the fact that within Yemen, particularly the south of the country, you do have both uh, ISIS and indeed al-Qaeda elements, uh, the latter of which are actually controlling territory. Much of the controversy at the moment is about the way the Saudis are conducting the airstrikes, which seem to be far less discriminate than even what is being done by Western countries yeah. in Syria. And on the subject of those airstrikes, Christopher, just tell us about this UN report that's come out. Yeah, what the UN is saying is that the arms can arms sales to the Saudis, they're a bit suspicious. I mean, you've got to be very careful when you sell arms. Are they going to be used in a way which you didn't imagine they might be used? And the British are right in the middle of this. I mean, we've sold something like getting on for six billion, six billion sterling uh, to the Saudis in the past uh, ten months. Uh, arms, uh, arm weapons, uh, part of a seventy-two aircraft typhoon. Uh, as a Eurofighter deal, uh, Hawk trainers, uh, twice as many weapons, if you like, bombs, uh, the crew web winning bombs and missiles on those aircraft. And the RAF actually has for their own aircraft uh, for the same thing. Uh, also, there's a question of whether certain chemicals that have gone to Saudi Arabia could be used as part of a deal to making CW. Uh, there's no conclusion to Chemical that. Chemical weapons. Well, yeah. Uh, body armour, uh, things like this. Now, here is two points to consider. The United Kingdom Parliament has, a, a, has a, a committee of MPs which looks at arms control and looks at the consequences for selling those arms control. That committee has not been allowed, has not been allowed to sit since the last general election. That was last May. And you get the members of that committee, our members are for the Defence Committee, the, uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee, for example, the Business Committee, and they haven't been allowed to sit. And the, the question is that since uh, the then uh, chairman uh, resigned at the time of Parliament, they haven't managed to find a new chairman. Hmm. That's not entirely true. It, it then bounces into something else which is very disturbing, and that is that the Britain, because of the arms, con uh, because of the arms sales agreements that it's got, uh, voted for Saudi Arabia to go on mm. the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. Now, if that's true, uh, that brings in a whole dirty story, some dirty washing with washing in the biggest arms contract we've ever had in the world. Let's uh, just move out of this area for the moment because we still haven't resolved one of the biggest conflicts in the last 10 years, which affects British forces, and that's Ukraine, Christopher. Um, movement today? <laughs> it's movement. It's really funny. You know, NATO... 
You see, this is sort of NATO's war, isn't it? If it is, if it is that, and they've come to they've come to two, three conclusions. One is okay, Crimea is it's that's done with. There's nothing you're going to do with that. The that Ukraine itself is going to be eventually federated. In other words, you accept that the Russians or Russian sympathisers got that bit, and the others were the original Ukrainian government. But the most ironical thing is that there were 27 members of NATO meeting in Brussels today. And they've decided that the Russians knew quite a lot about PR. And the Russians beat them up. In what sense? The way they presented the whole thing about Ukraine. And they did a better job than NATO. Now, when you consider NATO what it is, you've got some of the flashiest PR media uh, in the world. People sort of admire it. And they're beginning to think at NATO that they've got to get their act together and try to improve how they sell what they're trying to do, mm. because in particular, because they're now coming to the conclusion that there's nothing they can do, so how do you sell that? It's quite an admission from, from a, an organisation that big and that important. Professor Paul Rogers, um, do you get the, the sense that NATO has really been playing catch-up right from the start with Ukraine? I think it has, yes, but what I think is very interesting now is the Russians appear really to want to do a deal as far as eastern Ukraine is concerned. They've got what they want, the incorporation of Crimea, and I think in a sense they're willing to do a deal, and in return, well, we'd never talk about this in public, of course, there would be a kind of tacit acceptance that Russia is going to maintain influence in Syria through into the post-Assad regime era. I also think, frankly, that, you know, we, we have this view of the huge Russian military machine. It's not that big. The Russian economy is weak, didn't grow at all last year, and they have a lot of problems internally. I think, in fact, that if they were to maintain the current tempo of operations in Syria for any length of time, they'd be seriously stretched trying to do anything more in Ukraine. And the end result of that is I think they're prepared to do deals, and one suspects that behind the scenes in different fora, deals are being worked out in this, which will probably end, as Christopher said, with the Federation of Ukraine, the acceptance that Crimea goes in with Russia, but the rest, it's not strictly a Russian acquisition in the rest of the part of eastern Chris Ukraine. And Paul, delete the word Ukraine, insert the word Syria. Exactly, yeah. Oh, and what lessons are there to be learned for people trying to figure out what to do about Syria? Well, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult problem. Uh, the Russian involvement is very heavy. We've learned there have been further long-range airstrikes by the Russians. What is clear is that within the American administration, there has been a decision to up the ante quite considerably. And I think part of this, of course, is trying to get more help from NATO on the airborne surveillance. The Americans are now putting more special forces in. There's this probable forward base in the Kurdish part of Syria. And essentially, it means that they really are trying to go higher harder for ISIS, and I would suspect also that they're going to be probably envisaging more protracted airstrikes against the ISIS units in Syria, in Libya as well. This is an area of the conflict which I think is escalating at present. Fascinating that uh, at this time of the year the Americans actually uh, start to put together or, or, or publicly put together their de their defence review or their defence uh, uh, budget, which then is discussed and doesn't get approved until probably October, November of uh, later the year. When you look at some of the sketch work they're doing at the moment, this particular month, and you see what they're doing on the budgetary side for Syria, the numbers are missing. Now, my experience... And that'll be because... Well, my experience of following American defence budgets um, is, is because they don't know how long it's going on. 
<laughs> and therefore they don't know where to book the budget and where the budget is actually coming from. And they're doing it at a time where they're trying to get a new deal uh, on, on the nuclear uh, cruise missiles. Let's reflect now on something terrible that happened last year because last spring nearly 9,000 people died when two massive earthquakes shook Nepal. The epicentre of the first earthquake was in the remote village of Barpak in Gorkha district, the area where the British army recruits Gurkha soldiers. Well, nine months on, ex-Gurkhas and villagers are all still struggling to get back to normal. Suman Karel from BFBS Gurkha Radio sent this report. Fifteenth January was the festival day of Maghi Sakranti in Nepal. When we reached the makeshift camp of Paltan Khali and his wife Buduni Khali in Barpak village of Gorkha district, there was no sign of celebration. Both of them were busy grinding buckwheat. Getting something to eat is not a big issue for them, but the recent snowfall and cold weather has added misery to their daily lives. British Army welfare pensioner in his 70s, Pelton, and his wife are concerned that they may have to spend this entire winter in the makeshift camp. This year it is very frosty and cold. The snow melts and water drops inside the tent. Life is really tough. During the rainy season, frogs, snakes and rain will come inside these tents. If the government cannot build houses, they should say so. We would look for alternative ways. Paltan's wife, Buduni, looks more worried about her granddaughter. We thought this soldier would be temporary, but it has been so many months. On one hand, it is cold. On the other, it is a problem to keep the children warm. If I try to burn firewood inside, the tent is filled with smoke. I'm so worried about my little granddaughter. It is estimated that around 1,140 former British Army Gorkhas and their families are facing a kind of humanitarian crisis created by the earthquake. In Gorkha district alone, their number is around 160. Many organizations have distributed food, clothes and medicine. Temporary shelters can also be seen. But the earthquake victims are in need of permanent housing, according to one ex-Gorkha, Sundar Khali. We need a house. There is no space in this hut even to keep our utensils. These clothes are not enough to keep us warm. Everyone comes in assure us, but necessary aid hardly arrives. It's been almost nine months since the first tremor shook Nepal. The government has been criticized heavily for not coordinating the relief and assistance properly. This week, the National Reconstruction Authority launched a mega-campaign for the reconstruction of earthquake-ravaged infrastructures. But the actual work is to start only after three months. So, it is likely that the victims will have to endure this whole winter mostly on their own, shivering in their temporary shelter.
That was Suman Karel reporting. Well, when it comes to charity, the British military appears to be very well served. Two years ago, a report by Lord Ashcroft said there were 2,050 charities directly related to the armed forces, too many to be effective. Now there are 2,200 or thereabouts. So what is the situation exactly? The Confederation of Service Charities, known as COBSIO, is an umbrella organisation. Let's hear from Lieutenant General Sir Andrew Ridgway, who is the chairman of that organisation. Good to speak to you today. Thank you for coming in. You too, uh, not at all. Two years on f- from that report, have things changed much? I, I think we have made considerable progress. I mean, it's always been very well coordinated. Uh, The role of COBSIO is to encourage and facilitate cooperation and collaboration between the charities uh, to make sure that they identify any gaps, that they um, avoid overlap and that they uh, identify and embrace best practice. You don't actually cover all all charities and groups though, do you? No, we we have 250 uh, active members, but through reach through subordinate organisations, we probably go out to about 1,500 of them. Mm. And so we, we do cover most of the service charity sector. Uh, the recent report into the workings of the Armed Forces Covenant found that there's, there's money going into charities from the government, for example, but that people are having difficulties knowing how to access that money. How can things be improved exactly? Well, I think, I think uh, there is a need to make sure that everybody in the Armed Forces community knows where they need to go to get help. I mean, there are over six million members of the Armed Forces community veterans, families, serving servicemen and women, families and so on. Um, and many of them are well linked in to the charities. Charities got excellent helplines and they deal with people all the time. But there are people out there who, um, who, who don't know where to turn and we come across it quite a lot. Um, and uh, we're in the business of trying to establish a, um, a contact centre, a place where you can call and it's easy to call and you can then be passed uh, directly to the to the area you need, need help, which might be a charity, uh, might be a service charity or a non-service charity, or it could be the part of the NHS, or it could be local or central government, but you need to be directed to where you need to go. From your point of view, at what point does the government's obligation end to the armed forces and the charity obligation begin? Well, I think uh, the government, uh, in all its forms, and it's more and more complicated with the devolved administrations and and, uh, the fragmented NHS and so on, but the government has the absolute responsibility. It is the the government's responsibility to support uh, members of the armed forces and, and veterans, but they can't do everything, and so where there are where there are gaps, or where there is an opportunity to provide so, an is, even better service. Interesting, you say that where there are gaps, because with two thousand two hundred groups, you'd think there wouldn't be any gaps. No, well, there's just gaps in, in in what the government provides. So the government is is unable to provide everything, or, or it can only provide to a certain level. And we want to give even better service, and that's when the charities come in. But the charities are all independent; they have mm. their own trustees and their own objects, and they must decide how they're going to use their, their effort uh, for in the best interest of the service uh, uh, sector. Are there too many? Uh, no, I, I don't think there are. I mean, it's easy to say there are too many, um, but the key is making sure that what they do is, is properly coordinated, that they collaborate and cooperate together. And we do that extremely well through our cluster organisation. Um, and if you, if you went to NCVO, the National um, Charity Voluntary Organisation um, sector, they would say that the service charity sector is the best coordinated of any charity sector. Some of the smaller child charities are founded by somebody, perhaps as a tribute to some, somebody's sacrifice. Mm. How do you make sure that people that set those up are actually fulfilling a need? What we try and do, when, when we, and we come across this a lot, and it's 
completely understandable why someone who's had a loss would wish to set up a charity to um, keep the name of that person alive. What we try and encourage them to do is not to set up a separate charity, but actually to it go... It must be hard, though, to persuade people well, that they want to name it after somebody. No, no, they, they can do all of that. They can have all of that benefit by setting themselves up as a restricted fund in another charity, in SAFA or something. So they get all the benefits, they get all the name, but they don't have to run the administration, they don't have to do the accounting and all the rest of it. This is a much better way, and this is we have an active program of trying to encourage people to join in with another charity get all the benefits from it without being a separate one. Do you think it's a shame in a way that there's a need for so many charities to support the military? Um, Because I mean if the government was arguably doing its job and it had an open-ended commitment to the armed forces the need wouldn't really be so great. Mm -hmm. Well we have in this country we have a, a tremendous history of of, of charity work I mean it's un, unlike any other country it goes back a thousand years and uh, people uh, there is a, a culture of, of charitable giving people want to help they want to support others and they do it either by giving money or by volunteering or in a whole raft of ways and I think that's something we ought to encourage it's a very important part of of, of, of British so- social life Christopher your thoughts on this I tell you it's and it's it's a danger, huge danger here of being absolutely rude. Um, <laughs> no, it's always a danger with you, Christopher. <laughs> no. <laughs> right, go on then. Um, I do a little work with uh, some people, uh, military people who uh, have got difficulties in using some of the equipment they've been given, etc., et and also some of the uh, uh, things they have to wear, etc. And this is mostly mostly army and some navy. What I've started to come across is that civilians saying, you know, the army gets a better deal than we do. If you lose a leg, next thing on television, you've got some guy, justifiably, brilliantly, he's got a leg that does everything else but sort of peels potatoes. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic, the latest technology thrown into it. Where in one case, and this was about nine months ago, for example, uh, a guy with one arm, an arm having to be amputated, and he was having uh, an arm made for him out of what was frankly hardboard. And he said, this is Mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. A lot of the guys down there, the people I'm mixing with, and they feel bad and bitter anyway because, I mean, look at the state they're in. Uh, And saying, well, if I had been in the army... I wouldn't be in this mess. Essentially, Mm. how do you get the balance right in that kind of situation? Well, I think the Armed Forces Covenant is is very clear on this. It says that um, there must be no disadvantage as a result of your service. But you're talking about an advantage, aren't you, I suppose? Yeah, Yeah, Mm. but the second part of that says that those who have given the most in the extreme, Mm. which is either those very seriously wounded or bereaved, that they should have an advantage. But even so, you you get very uh, rightly uh, those who've been very seriously wounded in the armed forces do get the best support but even then it's not as good as we would wish to see and Mm. so we have uh, charities like Blesma and of course Help for Heroes and 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 others that provide even better support and people have been flown off to get special treatment for prosthetic limbs and so on and that is the people of this nation using their money just briefly before you go if we're talking this time next year what one thing would you have liked to have achieved 
I think even better cooperation and collaboration, and not just with between the charities, but with the charities and government, and in particular with the devolved administrations. We've got it working very well in Scotland. What we are in the process of doing is working with Wales and Northern Ireland to make sure that that is uh, that, that that level of support is coordinated. Come right back and report them. back, Sir Andrew Ridgway. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming in. All the best. Yeah, pleasure. Um, Professor Paul Rogers is still with us from the University of Bradford. Uh, Paul, uh, looking ahead to this time next week, what, was she, what do you think will be on our agenda? I think, well, something certainly on the Syrian talks. I Indeed. suspect, and I hope I'm wrong, that there will be a consideration of expanding air war in Libya. Uh, that, I'm afraid, is certainly popular and uh, possible, and it's looking that way at present. Christopher. The, the, the war in Libya, there are guys from special forces now working in, in, in Libya, uh, both American and British, and there are going to be more. And that's going to be exposed um, to all sorts of uh, conditions that we don't understand at the moment because it's so erratic what's going on. Now, what's happened is the British forces have been moved to a, uh, to a base uh, which is in Benghazi. And this has got a lot to do with uh, what forces could be made available to actually produce a, a stable government. It is unlikely that will happen, but the shift is going to move away, I think, from what's happening in Syria this week to what's happening in, 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 in uh, uh, Libya. The other thing which I, I you know, don't lose sight of today, uh, Litvienko's, uh, the, the, the guy that was the Russian that was killed on the streets of London, his widow Marina Litvienko is gone off to see uh, Mrs. Uh, May, the, the Home Secretary. Mm. This is not going away. The, uh, there are going to be other stories about who else was killed I on am, the streets of London. I'm sure we'll be talking about it. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Don't forget, you can listen again. Just search online for BFBS Sitrep Podcast. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.